This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Good morning. Let's uh, begin with the word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, our hearts are our hearts are before you and they are in different places. We are aching. We are Frazzled, excited, frustrated. Right now, I'm lamenting. 22 and a half years doesn't seem like enough. It doesn't seem like justice. And yet I wrestle with your words that say you desire mercy more than sacrifice. And to learn what that means, to wrestle with that, what that entails for loving my enemy is it's really hard. So, Heavenly Father, I, uh, I wrestle with your word this morning. I, I wrestle with the world that I live in. And I ask you, Lord, to teach me your peace, teach us your kindness. And Lord, recognize that you are also wrestling with me. My flesh and my nature that war against your kingdom. Lord, help me not to be complicit in the way I read scripture. Or that I read the world around me. Give me your eyes of peace, of kindness, of compassion. But, oh Lord, I thank you for the moment to lament and ask you how long. And forgive me for saying that 22 and a half years doesn't seem long enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. I didn't expect to go there that early, but that's what prayer does sometimes. Uh, it's an honor to be with you, Icon community. I'm, I'm always grateful to be here. I'm, uh, nothing is more humbling than to realize you are not needed in a place when there's a, uh, just a community of preachers here. And uh, I just count myself as blessed to uh, be asked to share. I, I'm be, I'll be sharing, uh, wrestling with the scripture from Matthew 10, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. So if you would bear with me again, hear the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh man, the terrifying word of the Lord. On March 7th, 1965, John Lewis uh, tried to lead a peaceful protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. It became known as Bloody Sunday as police violently beat the protesters down. Three weeks later, Martin Luther King led 3,000 marchers across the same bridge and continued walking 54 more miles towards Montgomery, the state capital. It was a watershed moment in the civil rights movement. The genius of this move is that King challenged the recently federalized Alabama National Guard to protect its citizens from other citizens. And this is the paradox, is that nonviolent protests often exposes or it leads to, it incites violent response. John Lewis already proved that to be true three weeks before Martin Luther King decided to walk across the same bridge. But here's the genius of King, is that he runs the same game back. Hey, let's run that back. But he adds in a wrinkle, and justice demands that we are treated equally. So in the face of a peaceful, nonviolent protest, will the state-sanctioned military force be willing to apply violent force against violent opposition? Or will they stand back and allow nonviolent protesters to be assaulted? In other words, King brought in a third party to the paradox. What starts out as a conflict between two opposing forces becomes a window, an ethical dilemma for the U.S. government. And we get to see their character, what they really believe. And this is why I want to suggest that our God, one of the attributes of our God, is that he is a God paradox. Not to bring about confusion, but by leaning into the contradictions, by living in the tension of this paradox, do we find these these windows that expose our true intentions, our true heart. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He never lifted a sword. He brings division and yet calls for unity. If we only want unity as a symptom, but no cross, we don't have the kingdom. If we only want peace but no cross, we don't have the kingdom. So if you only focus on the apparent contradictions and allevi alleviating one or placating one side of it, if we only deal with that which makes rational sense, that, that is sensible, practical, profitable, we will never fully understand God. Because, let's be honest, the best things in life are not necessarily rational, practical, and profitable. 
and so it is with the kingdom of God. Niels Bohr, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, said this, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. Of course, it could also be fake news. So uh, this is really important that we need to cultivate ears to hear. And Dallas Willard says that the key spiritual gift of our age is discernment. We have to be able to figure out what is truth in the midst of all this chaos. So let those who have ears hear. We need to discern how to lean into the paradox of God. I don't know if this is news flash to anybody, but God is paradoxical. Yes, God is sovereign and forgiving and faithful and kind and compassionate and merciful and just. But the very premise, the Christian understanding of God is that God is paradox. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. And yet we know even at the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That the image of God was made in a collective first person, our image. Let us make man in our image. And that out of that image came man and woman. God is both individual and collective. The Trinity represents community in and of God's self, self-sufficient and yet pouring into the other self. Both in self-reflection and in self-projection, God is able to unify emotions, intellect, and being with and without boundaries, limitations, or time and space. Tell me we're not in the definition of paradox yet. We're not even out of Genesis. That God is powerful over all, sees it all as good, everything he created, and yet allows for the potential of evil and free will and misunderstandings and disappointments. What a mighty paradox we serve. And then we get into the multiple instances of paradox in the people of God. Many times in scripture, the protagonist doesn't express any understanding or awareness of their place in the story. But for our sake as readers, we're given insight into their paradoxical conundrum. For Abraham, the father of many nations who lacks a son for most of his life. As Jen preached earlier in the series, how do you seek provision in a moral God who may ask us to do something immoral? It's a deeply troubling question. It's the basis of Soren Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling. And then you have Moses, the prince of Egypt, we've all seen the movie, who is not of Egypt and dares to ask the question, who is my people? And then you have Esther, the Persian beauty queen, who's not Persian. Jonah, the most reluctant missionary, who knows God is kind, but doesn't want to share the word of repentance, to call them to repentance so that they might be saved. He'd rather 
a tree over his head be saved than an entire city. Bravo, Jonah. Glad you're one of our prophets. And then you have David, the beloved womanizing warrior shepherd. In our modern Western way of thinking, we have no problem breaking things down into dualities, good and evil, black and white, individual, collective, rest and work. But as the Quaker Parker Palmer writes, the deeper truths of our lives seem to need paradox for full expression. There is truth in both poles, and we live most creatively when we live between them in tension. As I recount these biblical narratives, these biblical protagonists, these heroes of the faith, most of the time they weren't aware that they themselves were paradox, that in fact the conundrum and the dilemma that they lived in and probably lived in them set them up for their calling, their purpose, their mission in life. We read these stories, and I have to ask you, what is the paradox that you live in? What would describe the conundrum of the life that you lead? Very important for us to at least reflect and journal in that sense. To be Black in America, I dare say that's a conundrum. To be white in modern-day America, I hope you feel a little bit of cognitive dissonance. This is the paradox we live in. And it's very interesting that once you become aware of it, and it begs reflection, godly, deep, soul-wrenching reflection on how we're to live as Christ followers, to be Black Christian in America, to be white and Christian in America, to be Asian in America and Christian. These deep tensions live in me. We'd like to wish these tensions away. You know what? I'm not not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to be Christian. I'm just going to worship in my home all day. I don't have to deal with none of this new stuff. I don't have to deal with these current events. I don't have to deal with the inequities. I'm just taking care of me and my house. You need to check yourself against the word. We don't have that luxury of reducing paradox. We are called deeply into the terrifyingly swirling waters of paradox. But I get it. I get it. I mean, we live in a great deal of tension. If you want to talk about the paradox of the suburb, I mean, to be, to live the suburban life is to want to be in a structure of community all for myself. I want all the convenience of franchise big box stores and restaurants, but lack the awareness that I am creating the inconvenient traffic and gridlock, that I don't want to deal with the fact that I might be complicit in destroying small businesses or straining public transportation and affordable housing. My fantasy of having a quiet, private, suburban life may be the very root of my loneliness, my echo chamber, even as I say with my mouth that I desire true and real kingdom community. What about the paradox of our work lives, our overachieving American 
work lives are such that we have invested years to be experts in our specialties that we hope will make us secure and valuable. But we want perennial financial reward and security in a market that is so reactive and volatile and fickle. So we're forced to make as much money as we can, get as much insurance as we can, but what security, peace, and sense of worth do you think that leaves us? We're not secure. Many of us feel more precarious than we were in high school. We're stuck. Some of us are stuck in golden handcuffs with insurance policies that cover all of our possessions, but our relationships are in shambles. And for all the money that we put into our homes and stuff, we're always looking to get away on vacation. There's also a paradox that, uh, about our economy. It's called the Batman paradox for fun. This paradox explains our economic system that Bruce Wayne and Wayne Industries operating with enough excess disposable cash in a morally agnostic capitalistic system where you buy low and sell high, where you hire for the cheapest prices and you, 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 you make the most expensive products and you may maximize profits and minimize expenses may very well be contributing to the environment of crime in Gotham City. And the paradox here is that Bruce Wayne may unwittingly be creating the systems of inequality and humanity, inhumanity that Batman so heroically fights at night. We love the superhero, but fail to see that if we lived more equitably and compassionately, we might not need a superhero at all. The paradox of the American church is that we would fight tooth and nail to preserve the integrity of the gospel while being completely unaware of the toxic, cultish, narcissistic, nationalistic fiefdoms we are creating and calling the kingdom of God. Our churches bear little resemblance to the kingdom of God we see in scripture, nor has any integrity to the red-lettered words of Jesus. And this is the tension of being in the world and not of it. Sometimes the irony is that the only ones that can't see it are Christians. The irony of critical race theory. I mean, I don't, that might be the whole joke. I don't even know if I need to say any more. But if I may, the irony is that critical race theory is debated by people who cannot acknowledge the privilege and systems that, that have been created. It is terrifying to those who have been terrorists to others. And they feel threatened that it is being taught to their children while they have taken so much from the children of others. They are so afraid something is Marxist, they cannot fathom that Marx may have cared more for the poor than they do. They're so afraid of revolution, they would rather start one and blame the others. They say that the subject of race divides, but the reality of race is not a problem. The theory is more threatening than the reality. That's the paradox we're in. And I want to say this really clearly. Our inability to entertain paradox is our inability to challenge our own delusions. Whether that be critical race theory, whatever we consider to be our legacy to be, and yes, even what we consider our Christian life, we are so deeply living in an illusion that we dare not live into the contradiction. Martin Luther King was criticized that his nonviolent protests would often lead to violence. 
In fact, that was, that was actually part of his strategy, that King knew well that peaceful demonstrations he organized would bring, at the very least, tough, repressive measures by the police. It was a risk he was willing to take. When King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in December 1964, U.S. News and World Report wrote an article entitled, Man of Conflict Wins a Peace Prize. But here's the paradox as well. Um, Taylor Branch, uh, a biographer of King, wrote this. It was in September 1962 in Birmingham, which was still segregated. They were having their convention, which is a gutsy thing to do because they're inviting an integrated group to have a convention explicitly promoting civil rights in a fiercely segregated town. And then an assailant started slugging King. Most people thought it was a surprise part of the program. He walked up and slugged him, and people thought that this might be some sort of nonviolent demonstration. And then he hit him again. He hit him hard. In fact, King couldn't continue the rest of the convention. He knocked him around. The assailant knocked him around. And finally, people realized, oh, this wasn't a demonstration. And then it was, became an emergency, and they dragged King out. And then they swarmed around this Nazi, this assailant. But King cried out, don't touch him. Don't hurt him. And Taylor writes this. He says, it was an important revelation even for those who had been close to him for many years. Even for Rosa Parks, the heroine of King's first struggle, the Montgomery bus boycott. Rosa Parks was quite taken by that, Branch says, because she always thought that nonviolence was an abstraction to King. She told him that she had never really seen it in him until that moment. And a number of other people did too. You see, King had promoted nonviolence, but he didn't ride with the Freedom Riders. He didn't march in John Lewis's first march across Pettus Bridge. In many ways, King was a latecomer. He lacked credibility. He was seen as the intellectual, the voice behind the movement, but he was never the feet, the hands behind the movement. So when the predicament came where somebody is violently assaulting him, he cries out, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. He embodied, finally, the abstractions of his faith. And this is where nonviolence becomes very real and tangible. It's just a good idea. In fact, the problem with our understanding of nonviolence today and the, the practice of nonviolent protest today, even though it's been given its most powerful run in the civil rights area and it, it has affected nations towards liberation, we kind of think of it as passe today. And definitely by the end of Dr. King's career, it was seen as sort of, well, we don't, it's, not the, it's not so effective, when in fact it had been incredibly effective. 
the writer of this, the biographer writes, he says, the only place I found that studied nonviolent protest in the classrooms was in our war colleges, the Naval War College and West Point. This is the challenge for us as well. In order to live into the paradox, we must not make it an abstraction that will redeem the world. This is why the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God, was forced into the paradox of the incarnation of Christ. And so it is with us that we must also reckon with this truth that our orthodox thinking will not intrinsically lead to orthodox living, that our thoughts and words about the kingdom will not lead to the presence of the kingdom. It's only when we put our lives on the line that it begins to prove the truths we say we uphold. This is the paradox of the cross. The cross was an instrument of death, capital punishment, a sign of the empire to keep the conquered oppressed, an instrument that was meant to inspire fear in the citizens. It was meant to humiliate and shame. It was meant to control. And yet Jesus Christ takes on the cross and turns it and transforms it into a symbol that is quite the opposite. Instead of fear, it brings hope. Instead of shame, it brings freedom. Instead of oppression, it means (laughs) subversion a subversion, a different version of the kingdom we live in. It completely, radically changes the way, from the roots, the way we think about life together. All the things that we are afraid of, all the things that we want to control, all the things that we want to have power over, they get lost in the cross. They don't make sense in the face of the cross. But unless we are willing to live into that paradox, unless we are willing to face our contradictions, one thing I appreciate about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and what they're going through now is uh, it's pretty public. It's all over the Twitterverse. It's, you, you know, the paying attention to it. And it's easy for us to take the high road and say, oh, we're not like them. And oh, we're, we're so much more enlightened, blah, blah, blah. But to have all this public talk, wrestling with their identity, at least they're doing it. Are we doing it? What is it that we're blind to? What is it that we need to die to? Because the paradox of our lives needs to be nailed to the cross. This idea of power and patriarchy and privilege, all these things need to be nailed to the cross. Not just metaphorically or in the abstraction, we need to walk this out in community. And then all these, this conversation, this language about conflict and peace and forgiveness and and hospitality and true generosity, these things take place that begins to lean into the paradox. Because the difference between solitude, loneliness, and community is just a matter of leaning into paradox and figuring out where I need other people's 
boundaries to help myself draw my own boundary, where forgiveness becomes a negotiation. As Miroslav, Miroslav Volf, the theologian, calls it, it's embrace, embrace and exclusion. It's my enemy defining me and me defining my enemy and redefining them as neighbor and friend. Often we are called to eliminate paradox. But I want to suggest to you, Icon family, that most of the Christian life is called for us to go through it. Not around it, not eliminate it, but to live in the paradox. What does it mean to be black, Christian, and American? What does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be middle class? What does it mean to be privileged? What does it mean to be able-bodied? What does it mean to be straight? What does it mean to be gay? All these things aren't challenges to our identity. They're the sum of them, to bring them together, and yet say, what of these things need to die on the cross? What of this identity is keeping me from understanding more fully God's love for me? And this has to happen in a way that requires reflection, humility, suffering, lament, a clear sense of reflecting on who God has made me to be and all my limitations. We cannot be whatever we desire to be. We must reckon with the fact that I am God's. And I must rest, wrestle with and reckon with, what does that mean? I may be Asian American. Some of that I can volunteer for and some of that I can deny. It is up to Christ how much of that I can deny. I am male and married and educated. Some of that I can shed myself of and some of that I can't. The problem is not the paradox. The problem is not the contradiction. And to some of us as Christians, I would say the problem is not the hypocrisy. It's the lack of reflection, the lack of entering into, the lack of inviting the Holy Spirit into the paradox. This is the very nature of God. It's the very attribute of God. It's the very challenge of God so that we might be exposed. All my selfish ambition, all my sin, all my woundedness, all my addictions, all my brokenness, this is also me. How can, I, how can I confess what I will not look at in me? Oh, just because I can see clearly see it in others does not abdicate me from the responsibility of being seen by others and also seeing myself. This is the great work of the church, the great, ordinary, solitary, beautiful, simple work of the church. If we don't do it, who will? If we don't confess our sins, who will? All we need is that simple practice to say, I will take my cross. I will, this is not my father's sin that dictates my life. This is not my daughter's sin that reflects my life or parenting, whatever I think defines me. That's what Jesus is saying. He brings a sword. He brings division. Why? Ultimately to isolate me before the cross. Will I pick it up? 
The great work of the church is this, is to work through this daily, solitary life of the believer in community. Yet another paradox. So I, I want to encourage you, Icon community. The reason why we are together, the reason why we are intersecting with each other's lives is not just to encourage one another, but to build one another up. How do we build one another up? By engaging the paradox of our lives. Engaging and being able to see the paradox, and this is a paradox in marriage too. You are most vulnerable, you are most seen, so you should be shamed, you should be hated, you should be loathed for all your bad habits. And yet, we are seen and loved. Let me just close with one more paradoxical interaction with, between Jesus and the woman who had many husbands. He says to her, neither do I condemn you. All these men who had rocks to stone her with, they had to leave. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Before he says, he says that before he says, now go and sin no more. Often the church will try to say, go and sin no more first. But Jesus's paradoxical engagement with her, say, I, I don't condemn you. There are no stones to throw at you. This is, what this is what it means for us to live in community. I have no stones to throw at you. Now let's go and sit no more. The removal of condemnation precedes the call to live a sinless life. That is really hard to imagine, but that is the beauty of the cross and community. I invite you to live into that paradox with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says that we are known and yet regarded as unknown. We are dying and yet we live. We are beaten and yet not killed. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. How is this so, O oh God? Even in our emptiness, your fullness is before us. Even in our despair, you love us even more. Even in our judgmentalism, your grace awaits us. How amazing, how wonderful are you, O oh God, that you would call us to something greater, that you would call us into the great mystery, that you would call us into this absurdity of love and of grace and of kindness and of compassion, even justice. Oh, it is amazing, your work in us. Holy Spirit, I, I, I'm just so grateful that you're working in our hearts, in our community. Lord, the, the world is still waiting, groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Reveal us. Prepare us for this apocalypse. Prepare us so that we might be revealed in this paradox. We might fully own the cross as we bear with joy. That we might not, not look away from suffering, but that we might take it on willingly and together, recognizing that we are confronting evil. We are confronting our sin. We are confronting our addiction with the power of the paradox of the cross.
we gladly sing to this beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me end with a uh, benediction. It's a call and response benediction, which is foolish to have on a uh, pre-recorded thing, but I'm going to give you space to respond. That's all right. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men and women. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.